Good morning, Grace Point. You know, I appreciate so many things about your church. Thank you for everyone who's participated and made this service uh, just a beautiful thing so far. And uh, the music, the children's story, the prayers. And I'll tell you, as I walk around here and I see all of the scriptures on the wall, I really like that. That's a great idea. Um, I was even in the men's restroom earlier and saw a... um, They have a little um, plaque there that has some really just a neat little um, reminder, and I thought that was great. And I'm excited that your new building is coming together, and I heard it's going to be about four to six months, and it will be completed. That's just amazing. I want to talk to you today about the kingdom of God, the upside-down kingdom of God. If you're having a hard time reading that, you're not alone. But I thought I'd Call it the upside-down kingdom of God because that's really what it is. Pray with me once again. God, we're here in your house. We've been lifted up close to you through music and words and prayer already. But again, we invite you into this place and into our hearts to speak to us now through your words for a few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. The story of the kingdom of God is an unlikely one. Think about it. An impoverished Middle Eastern teenager becomes the mother of God. Rumors circulate about who the father of the baby might be. Unrecognized, the birth of this poor teenager's son takes place in a barn in a country village. Common sheep herders are the first to know about the advent of this God-man, and they rush to worship this new king whom they find bedded down in a feeding trough for animals. The God-child and his parents then become refugees fleeing to Egypt from the decree of a despotic monarch who wants to kill this baby. I mean... Who would introduce the Savior of the world like that? Would you? And then there's the messianic prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53 back there in the Old Testament where the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior of Israel is revealed in this prophecy. But but notice Isaiah 53, how this coming Deliverer is described. He's described as a young, tender plant. Not very strong, not very robust. A root that would grow in parched, dry, desert ground. Isaiah said he would have no beauty that would attract us to him. We would even hide our faces and avoid looking at him. People would despise him, they would reject him, and yet he would be the one who would carry our sorrows, our sicknesses, and be wounded for our transgressions and iniquities so that we could be saved. You know, if I were God, planning an invasion of a world that I had lost, I wouldn't send someone like that. If I were God setting up my kingdom on earth, I wouldn't do it like this. In fact, everything about this story is, is, is upside down. It's backwards. It's not the way that we get things done down here on planet Earth. 
In fact, it's a story that glorifies not the politically powerful, not the wealthy, not the well-connected, but it, but it stars people who are outcasts, who are poor, who are vulnerable, who are powerless. But that's the kingdom of heaven for you. Practically everything about it is unexpected. In fact, Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom of heaven. As soon as he was baptized, Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, who, by the way, his gospel is considered the, the gospel where Jesus is king, the kingdom gospel, mentions the kingdom of heaven. Jesus mentions it in his opening proclamation. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, here's what he said. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Some Bibles say at hand or it's here. And so people, as they heard this announcement of this, this new rabbi, this new teacher, they were excited. The nation of Israel, God's chosen, had been suffering under the occupation of a foreign invader, the Romans. And so as they heard the proclamation and the, the, the announcement of Jesus, they, they said, maybe this is it. Maybe this will get rid of these Roman soldiers that are in our midst. Their presence was a galling, bitter reminder to the Jews of their current political state. They were resentful. And instead of loving their enemies, which you'll have to admit, it's hard to do, isn't it? They passionately hated these foreign invaders. And even the millions of Jews who were scattered throughout the empire, those who had been dispersed, no matter if they lived in Jerusalem or not, they longed for that day when Jerusalem would again become a sovereign nation. So the popular theology of that day, taught by the rabbis, was that the Messiah was going to appear at the head of an army to kick out the Romans. He was going to lead a revolt, save the kingdom of Israel from the empire of Rome. And so as Jesus announced his, his ministry, it, it was exciting. People were excited. Could this be the Messiah? Would he take revenge on these oppressors? Would he bring back the sovereignty to Israel that was lost? Could he bless Israel with, with riches and honor and power and peace and prosperity? All the stuff that, that we naturally want. And people desperately hope so. They wanted revenge. They believed God was on their side against these oppressors. And they were looking for a Messiah who would come and give them a solution to their problems now. Which makes the inaugural address, perhaps Jesus' state of the kingdom address, if you will, that much more remarkable. Jesus sits down on a mountaintop. Matthew chapter 5 tells us, and he opened his mouth and he began to speak words to his disciples. And yet the words filtered out into the multitude that was there that day as well. And here is what he said. Now we're not going to read the whole Sermon on the Mount today. I just want to share a few of these little gems that Jesus shared with you today. First of all, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the what? The kingdom of heaven. How backwards that was. Blessed are the, the meek. The meek, for they will inherit the earth. What? What, Jesus? The meek? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. 
Really, Jesus? The peacemakers? Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed? Blessed are those who are persecuted because they will have the kingdom of heaven. People listening, no doubt, were shaking their heads, scratching their heads, wondering what this was all about. What was this kingdom that Jesus was announcing? And I'd like to ask that question today. What is, what is this kingdom of heaven? What is this kingdom of God that Jesus was announcing that day? You know, at his arraignment in front of Pilate, he's been arrested. He's been taken in front of Pilate now, the Roman governor. Jesus gives us a little clue here in John chapter 18. John chapter 18, verse 36. Here's what he said. You know this passage. He said, my kingdom, he tells Pilate, is not of this world. It's not a kingdom like you would think of a kingdom being down here. If it were, my servants would have been fighting all along for the last three, three and a half years, right? They would have been conquering, but no. My kingdom is not from this world. It's not from this place. It's not the kind of kingdom you're thinking about. And in fact, it's interesting because when the tempter came to Jesus in the wilderness, you remember, right? Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. He's hungry. The Bible says the first temptation was Satan tempted him to turn some stones into bread, if you're the son of God. The second temptation that Luke records, Matthew says it's the third, is this temptation. Jesus, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you something. Do you remember what it was? I will give you all the kingdoms of the world and all their power and all their glory. Oh, what a temptation that must have been. Shane Claiborne, who's written a few books about the kingdom of God, notes this. The, the second temptation in the desert was not a steamy love affair with Mary Magdalene, as some would have you think, but it was political power. The tempter showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and said, I will give you, Jesus, all of their authority and their splendor. Oh, man. Tempting. Satan said, it's been given to me. I can give it to anyone I want. If you will worship me, all will be yours. Unsurprisingly, Shane writes, the, given the Jewish story, the temptation was to take power back from Rome. This was the popular theology of the day. He could have been the one to overthrow Rome, to knock Caesar off his throne. He could have been the one to punish all of the enemies of the Jews. He could have stuck it to the man. Jesus was tempted. Satan thought this temptation up. He knew it was going to actually be something that Jesus might be tempted by because this was... A natural, first of all, a natural human instinct to want to take care of our enemies. And Jesus rejected this false narrative of his day, the theology that was taught by the rabbis. And he refused to worship the devil and thereby to receive the glory and the power of the kingdoms of this world. And so as we, as we ask the question, what is this kingdom that Jesus was announcing? What is it? This much is clear. This kingdom of God is different than the kingdoms of this world. True? Yeah? Different kind of kingdom. Jesus has made that clear so far by his words to Pilate and by his action of refusing the kingdoms that Satan was to, uh, that was, Satan was offering him. It's a kingdom that is not here yet. And how do I know that? Because in the prayer in Matthew chapter 6, that Jesus tells his disciples to pray. Do you remember that part in there? He said, 
Our Father, you know this one, you can say it with me. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then what's that next part? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said, pray this prayer, Father, your kingdom come. In other words, the kingdom is not one that has come yet. One theologian, as he looked at the Greek words there in in Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer, he notes that the verb that's translated come in English, thy kingdom come, is not a verb in the Greek that signifies a slow, gradual coming or movement, development, but actually implies a sudden, catastrophic type of movement. Interesting, right? And so this theologian says the prayer that we pray is a plea for the kingdom of God to burst on the world scene and to upend the kingdoms of this world. And we'll talk more about that in just a second. Well, what is this kingdom of God? We're asking that question. It's a kingdom that Jesus will bring to us from heaven. In fact, here's, here's exactly where it bursts on the world scene. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. The apostle Paul writes this letter to the Thessalonians. He says this. He says, then... The lawless one, Satan, right, is going to be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the splendor of his coming. It's going to happen just like that. It's going to, it's going to be a catastrophic, catastrophic event for the devil, right? Not for those who are trusting in Jesus, though. The prophet Daniel foretold it. We know this prophecy. If you've ever been in an Adventist church before, like you're sitting in one today, right, you've probably heard the prophecy of Daniel too, right? We know this one. We're good at this, and we're really good at pointing out that there's the kingdom of gold and, and, and the head of gold and the chest and arms of silver, the meat of Persians and the Greeks and the Romans and the feet of iron and clay, and sometimes we don't talk as much about the next part, which is probably the most important part, right? Which is what? It's the kingdom of God, and it's this stone cut out without hands. It's, it's not a man-made kingdom. That's why it's cut out without human hands and it comes and it smites this look listen to what daniel said listen to what he said and in the days of those kings that is the kings down at the end of this image here where we're living by the way the god of heaven listen to this will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed somebody ought to say amen i heard an amen right over here that's good isn't it good news this is a good kingdom nor shall the kingdom be left to another people in other words the, the people of God are going to be the ones who are inhabiting that kingdom. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. It shall stand forever. So if it isn't clear enough now what this kingdom of God is, or at least what it is not, it ought to be, right? This kingdom of God is a, a kingdom that is, is, is different, radically different than the kingdoms of this world. And not only that, but it destroys the kingdoms of this world. Jesus Put it this way in his own words, Matthew 25. He said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. That's when he's going to be crowned king once and for all. So while this kingdom is a heavenly kingdom, while it is not an earthly kingdom, while it is not yet here in all of its glory, here's something pretty amazing about it. We can still be citizens of this kingdom of this upside-down heavenly kingdom while we live on planet Earth. And so as another Bible theologian has put it, it is the kingdom of God that is already here, but not yet here. Already, 
but not yet. You like that? Already, but not yet. Here's how I like to put it. We are already taking part in the kingdom of God right now. We can be taking part in the kingdom of God right now. But the kingdom has not yet reached its full expression until Jesus comes back in the clouds the second time. Already, but not yet. Which is why Paul tells us that our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Our citizenship is in heaven, he said, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's right. Your name is written down in heaven. You're a, citizens, a citizen there, and, and we are waiting for our King to return. And so here's the thing. Through the church, through you, you are the church, through me, this upside-down, totally unexpected kingdom of God makes an appearance on planet Earth even today. Somebody else said it this way. He said, the kingdom of God is the sphere in which at any given time his rule is acknowledged. The kingdom of God can be in your home. It can be at your office. It can be in the Sabbath school class. It can be in your car as you're driving down the road talking to your, your spouse. Or The kingdom of God is the sphere, the place which at any given time his rules acknowledge. That's exciting, isn't it? Jesus said this. He said, the Pharisees asked him, hey, when is the kingdom of God going to come? He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Oh, yes, there's going to be that cataclysmic, catastrophic stone cut out without hands that's going to smite all the kingdoms of this world. Sure, that's going to happen. Yes, we know that. But the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about here, I think, is the kingdom of God that is here right now. Look what he said. Nor will they say, look here, it is or there. For the kingdom of God is actually in your midst right now. It can be in your heart. It can be in your life right now. Already, but not yet. What a beautiful truth. And so as we talk about the kingdom of God, this kingdom that is so different so backwards, so upside down from what we know of kingdoms. I want to talk about the essence of this kingdom for a minute. Because here's the thing, the kingdom in all its fullness is yet to come, and yet as we can be a part of this kingdom now, the question is how? And maybe the first question is, well, before we even get to the how, why would we want to? Why would we want to be a part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven right now? Three reasons, at least. First, it's the best way to live on planet Earth right now. Granted, Paul tells us that it is through much affliction that we enter the kingdom of God. you recall that? Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation if you follow me, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. But yet, even so, it's the best way to live, I believe, even now. Secondly, why be a part of this kingdom? Living as citizens of the kingdom now prepares us to live in the kingdom of glory then. Jesus said it this way. He said, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember that? Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father. In other words, 
those who enter that kingdom then will already have been living as citizens of that kingdom now. And thirdly, living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven here attracts others to become immigrants to that heavenly kingdom as well. So how? How do citizens of the kingdom of heaven live in the here and the now? And I I would suggest to you this morning that it's actually fairly simple. A friend of mine says, simple but not easy, but okay, it's simple. Jesus tells us how in Matthew chapter 25. If you have your Bible, you want to open up there, you can. Matthew, the 25th chapter. Jesus tells the parable that we all know so well. The parable of the sheep and the goats. The sheep and the goats. And Jesus tells us this in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31. He said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him. He will sit on his glorious throne. So so clearly Jesus is talking here about his second coming. He's talking about this, this catastrophic, earth-changing event, one of a kind in history that's going to happen very shortly. And then in verse 34, we go on down there, and, 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 and Jesus says, I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats. And then he's going to say to those on his right, verse 34, come, You who are blessed of my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For, verse 35, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and, and, and you came to visit me. And the people who are standing there, who are being invited into the kingdom, will say, well, Jesus, when did we see you? Sick or in prison. When did we see you? And he will say, inasmuch as you have done it unto, you know this part, one of the, what? least of these, you've done it unto me. Wow, this is amazing. Jesus talks about his kingdom. The story of the Gospels is full of the kingdom of God language where Jesus is, is reminding us about this kingdom. And yet as he talks about the kingdom and who's going to be there, he, he boils it down to something very simple. How we treat other people. Now I should pause here. And do just a little, and share a little side note here just so that we don't get confused. Because some might think that the good things that the sheep did somehow earned them a place in the kingdom. In other words, that because they fed the poor and they visited those who were in prison and they did all of these other things, that somehow that earned them a place in the kingdom. But the Bible is clear that, that we inherit the kingdom. Do you work for an inheritance? Do you pay for an inheritance? Do you somehow earn it or deserve it? No, no, no. It's free. It's given to you just like any other inheritance. And yet Jesus talks, even though the kingdom is free, even though it's given to those who will go into it. Grace is free. Jesus talks about those who will enter. Right? 
Why do their actions matter? I suggest to you that God looks at how they lived their lives, specifically how they treated the marginalized and the persecuted, the powerless, the socially outcast, so that he can determine how they will adjust to life in his kingdom. That's completely upside down from the way we naturally are. I suggest to you that God looks at their lives Because to live there, one must be unselfish. One must be other-centered. One must be God-centered. Our character doesn't buy our way into heaven, right? It doesn't buy our way into heaven. I hope you're clear on that. The death of Jesus is, is your ticket. It's my ticket to heaven, amen? But your character shows whether you're going to fit in there or not, right? Shows whether I'm going to fit in there, if I'm going to enjoy it or not. Here's the thing. This parable tells us what the essence of life is like for a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. What what characteristics do you think characterize citizens of this kingdom? Perhaps loving others, would that be one? Would that be, we could just sum it up there? Helping others in need? Maybe, Maybe we could even boil it down to unselfishness. Or maybe we could just sum it up with Jesus' words when he said it like this. Look at this. This is, this is remarkable. This is foundational. This is earth-shaking. In everything, therefore, he said, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Somebody else say, wow. I mean, that's crazy, isn't it? Jesus said, okay, listen, let's just boil it all down to one simple little maxim. One simple golden rule, as we call it. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, that's deep. Simple, not so easy, right? At least for me. I don't know. Maybe you're different than me. A little hard to put others first sometimes. A little hard to do unto others that I have them to do unto me. Think about this foundational kingdom principle. It's, it's revolutionary to the way I live my life, the way we think, the way we act, the way we treat others. It requires us to exercise empathy, to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and then ask, what would I want if I were in their situation? I'm going to take a little detour here for just a second. What time? Where's my timer? Don't tell me I'm good because that, you know... (laughs) Okay, what, what do we got here? Okay, I'm just looking at the... Okay, we've got a couple minutes here. All right. I want to take a little detour for a second and talk about the kingdom of Israel. Because here's the thing. This whole do unto others thing, did Jesus come up with that? Was he the first one to say to talk about that? Well, I guess you could if you consider him being God, right? Yeah, he's the one that talked to the Israelites about that. But no, if you go back into the Old Testament times, the Israelites in the Old Testament understood this, didn't they? In fact, you go back to Leviticus and it talks about this very... Very principle. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Leviticus 19, verse 18. Okay? We'll talk about the the kingdom of Israel for a minute. Because you see, I think that God ran a little experiment with the kingdom of ancient Israel. I don't know if it was an experiment, but I'm going to call it that. Israel was supposed to be an outpost of the kingdom of God on earth. You agree with that? You know, they were supposed to let God's kingdom life flow through them to the world around them, right? They were supposed to live it out in, in everything in their lives. And so, 
And, and so here's the thing. God's plan for the kingdom of Israel was that the golden rule, this simple, simple, beautiful foundational truth was to just permeate everything they did. It was, it was all about, they were to be all about what this rule was about. But unfortunately, we know that just like you and I often fail, they failed too. Um, for example, what, what if the Israelites had treated these foreign Roman invaders like this, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I, you know, instead of hating them, what if they'd have done that? What if instead of hoarding spiritual riches, which they did, they didn't want other people to know about even the truth of God that they knew. They kind of kept it to themselves. What if they'd shared it? Instead of hoarding literal riches, because in the Jewish uh, mindset of Jesus' day, if you were rich, you were blessed. If you were poor, you were cursed of God, right? What if they had, what if their theology had said, no, 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 the more you give away, the better, right? Or whatever. In fact, Jesus came along and he turned it upside down. He said, how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What? Boy. Well, that indicts pretty much all of us here in our country because if you live in the West and you have a roof over your head and food on the table, you're rich, right? And then some of us have a little extra on top of that, right? We're blessed. Let's just face it. We are blessed. In the people of Jesus' day, there was, you know, a wide disparity between the wealthy and the poor. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Ouch, that hurts, Jesus. And the disciples of Jesus were astounded. Now we must note, of course, that riches are neutral. They're not bad, are they? They're not a bad thing. It's not bad to have money. God, it says, blesses those who have wealth so they can acquire it. He gives people the, the knowledge and the ability and, and, and the business acumen to get wealth. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. Unless it's hoarded for selfish purposes, the Bible says, right? And so as Paul says, it's the love of what? Yeah, the love of money that's the root of all evil, right? I'm not here to talk about riches today, but we just had to mention that because here's the thing. God said, listen, selfishness is a big deal in my kingdom. It just doesn't work there, right? And it seems like when it comes to our pocketbook, that's, for me at least, uh, one of the best, most practical tests of my unselfishness. And so if selfless love is the most fundamental character quality in the kingdom of God, self-centeredness, selfishness is fundamentally opposed to the kingdom of God. And so God gave ancient Israel, he, he tried an experiment with them. He gave them these laws that you find in Leviticus chapter 25. Read the chapter. It's a really interesting chapter. Deuteronomy 15. Laws that targeted their natural selfishness. And in the process, listen to this, it made life better for those around them. Listen to this. These, these laws required the release of slaves every seven years and the forgiveness of all debts every seven years. Economic reset button. All debts forgiven every seven years. Pretty radical. That's what they, that's what they were supposed to do. Additionally, every 50th year was a jubilee and any land that you had inherited from your forefathers it was originally divvied up when the land of Canaan was, was, uh, was invaded, was supposed to revert to the original owner who was still living. Land return. Here's what it says, Leviticus 25, 
Verse 10, consecrate the 50th year, proclaim liberty. This is, this is like a beautiful passage. Throughout the land to all its inhabitants, it shall be a what? That's where we get the word jubilation. You think people were happy? They were, they, this was exciting stuff. Well, for most people, maybe. <laughs> Each of you is to return to your family property uh, and to your own clan. Now, it's interesting. In the classic book, Patriarchs and Prophets, um, there's a really interesting passage in there, which I thought I'd share with you today about this. And it, it, it talks about this from the standpoint, I think we're talking about the kingdom of God, right? This do unto others thing. Listen to this. She wrote these words. She said, the Lord would place a check upon the inordinate love of property and power. That's what he was trying to do with ancient Israel. Give them a chance to live out the kingdom of God in their midst. Great evils would result from the continued accumulation of wealth by one class and the poverty and degradation of another. There would be a feeling, listen to this, of despair and desperation which would tend to demoralize society and open the door to crimes of every description. And if you are familiar with, of course, history, we know that this is true in our world, isn't it? Sometimes there comes a breaking point, right? Guys, you know what? I, I, I want to help you guys kind of avoid some of this stuff here. So we're going to have a little reset button every seven years. Every 50 years, there's going to be a reset button. Radical idea, right? The regulations God established were designed to promote social equality. The provisions of the sabbatical year, just talk about that every seven years, the Jubilee 50th year, would in a great measure set right that which had gone during the interval had gone wrong in the social political economy of the nation. It was this radical idea of a reset button every so often. These regulations, let's look at this, were designed to bless the rich no less than the poor. Because you know what? I mean, you know this is true. When you give, it's, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus said it. Paul said it. It's true, isn't it? Somebody ought to say amen to that. Because, I mean, I, I found that to be true. It's, it's a blessing to see how you can help others. Ah, oh, it just makes you feel so good. They would restrain avarice and a disposition for self-exaltation when it could, and cultivate a noble spirit of benevolence, fostering goodwill, confidence between all classes. They would promote social order, the stability of government. And then look at this. I just love this. We are all woven together. Connected somehow, aren't we? And whatever we can do to benefit others will reflect in blessing on ourselves. Don't forget that part. Don't forget that part. And so God did this little experiment with the, with the kingdom of Israel. But did they live up to it? In fact, there's, a rec- there's no record of Israel ever implementing the Jubilee. Never happened. In fact, just a little side note, when the Israelites were carried off to Babylon... Jeremiah said this, or God through Jeremiah said, listen, I'm going to let you be captives for 70 years so the land can keep its Sabbath. And for 70 years, the land lay fallow. There was no harvesting or planting. And then the Israelites came back to the land of Israel. Interesting. Jesus picks up where Israel failed. Jesus picks up where I fail, where you fail. And at 30 years old, Jesus stands up in the church, the synagogue where he grew up, and here's what he said. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because God has anointed me to do what? To proclaim the good news to the poor. He's, he's announcing his mission. The kingdom of God is here. Here's what I'm here to do. I'm here to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Is he echoing Leviticus chapter 25 here? 
Is he echoing the year of Jubilee and the sabbatical year? Absolutely. He has to the captives and, and, and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And then here's what he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the, the Jubilee. And as he announces his kingdom there in Luke chapter 4, in the synagogue, the people of the synagogue stand up and say, get out of here. They rush him to the edge of the cliff. They're going to stone him. They're going to throw him over. They're going to do something. They don't want to hear this. We're not poor. We don't need this. And we're not going to fulfill this, Jesus. And Jesus disappears from among them. And after 33 years of living a life of other-centered, unselfish love, Jesus lays down his life in a supreme act of unselfishness. He resurrects three days later and he goes back to heaven. But he left behind a little group of people. And that little group of people, that little church, the called out ones, the ecclesia, here they are. They're all together. Look what it says in an upper room. Look at this. This is crazy. And they had everything in common. It says all the believers were together. They were like, you know what? We're going to live out that jubilee stuff. That's crazy, isn't it? I read this passage and it scares me a little bit. Because I don't like to share. Never have, still don't. Yeah, I mean, you know what I'm saying, naturally. Look what they did. Selling their possessions and good, they gave to anyone as he had need. This is radical. Look at this. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Were they, were they depressed about this? They were having a good time, it looks like to me. Praising God, enjoying... The, you know, here's the thing. I'm going to share with you just for five minutes here how we can be members of the kingdom of God. It's really simple as well. But when we become a part of this kingdom, when we're born again, I think this starts to come natural. Here's the thing. As I read the Sermon on the Mount, I read the Golden Rule, I read these Mosaic laws in Leviticus, I read about the early church sharing like this, and I realize that, man, I am nothing like that. I am nothing like the kingdom of heaven. Instead of being poor in spirit, I, I naturally strive for wealth and influence. Again, wealth is not inherently bad. Sharing everything in common with like the early Christians? No, I, I don't like doing that. Instead of a spirit of generosity, I, I desire to keep for myself. Instead of thinking of others, I naturally think of me. Meekness is not something I aspire to. I find that, in fact, I'm always thinking in the back of my mind how to go about building my own little kingdom. You ever find yourself doing that? How can I make myself, my little kingdom, look better? Like the disciples who wanted to be the greatest. Oh yeah, I can identify. Peacemaking? You kidding me? I want to fight for myself, my rights, not make peace. And I don't like the idea of being persecuted, Jesus. Sorry. Well, here's the good news. You don't have to try to, to fit yourself into the mold of the kingdom of heaven because you weren't born to fill that mold. Did you know that? You weren't. You can't. You're going to fail. Here's the bad news. If you want to be a part of the kingdom, you have to die to yourself, to your old way of living, and to be born again. There's only one way that I can become a citizen that you can become a citizen of this kingdom. Only one way to get to heaven. That's, that's my oldest right there. My wife holding our oldest. 
four years ago, you have to become like a little baby. Jesus said, John chapter 3, verse 5, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot, she cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said, unless you turn and become like children, you're never going to enter this kingdom because you have to start thinking differently. You have to start thinking like a kid. Upside down, backwards, different. Whoever humbles himself is the greatest. Something amazing happens when we're born again. We become like a little child. We start to live like the king of the kingdom. We become poor in spirit like the one who we follow. We become meek like the one who made himself of no reputation and took on the form of a servant. We become merciful like the one who gives us grace and mercy. We become peacemakers. And I'm going to skip this quote because we don't have time. But this is a beautiful little statement from Jesus. He said, fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God wants to... Okay, I, I'm going to make an understatement here. God wants you in heaven. Man, that's the biggest understatement of the day. Here's the good news. Fear not. It is your father's what? Good pleasure to give you this kingdom. And then Jesus goes on, the same passage, and here's what he connects it with. Sell your possessions, give to the needy. Kingdom of God. It's backwards, upside down. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old. Invest up there with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I thought about the kingdom of heaven when I heard the story of those 12 soccer players and their coach who were trapped in that cave in Thailand. Did your heart go out to them? Did you start to pray? I know there were hundreds and thousands and, and, and millions of prayers perhaps going up around this world as people heard that news. 12 little boys trapped in a cave. Would they make it out? Trapped inside of a pitch black cave a half of a mile or more underground, a couple miles in for 10 days, the boys almost gave up hope. Would they ever be found? They took turns, they later said, digging at the wall of the cave. Maybe they could dig their way out. It seemed hopeless. And it was, but on the 10th day, you know what happened. They heard something. And um, the coach said, shh, Let's send somebody down to look. So they were, one of them scrambled down with the remaining strength they had down towards the water in the dark cave. And they saw a light. And then they saw the two British divers, cave diving experts who'd flown all the way to Thailand, dropped everything and gone to be involved with this. They had been found. But their relief, no doubt, turned to anxiety as they waited to be rescued. It took five or six hours for, for a diver to, to traverse the treacherous cave, underground streams of water rushing at them, dark, treacherous passageway to reach the boys. Even the experts were barely able to make it, much less little boys with no diving experience. How could they get them out? Prayers continued to ascend. It was this, this man right here who made me think about the kingdom of God the most, though. You might have read about him. He was the Thai Navy SEAL, Saman Gunan, who had gone into the cave to place the 
um, air canisters for the divers as they were making their way back. They had to restock their air and, and have new air supply. He was placing them in the cave, and he somehow ran out of air himself and died. When asked about this volunteer and former Navy SEAL diver who had lost his life helping them, one of the boys later said that the whole group was shocked and saddened by the news. They felt like they were, they were the reason that he had died and his family had to suffer. And then one of the boys actually said this. He said this. He said, Saman sacrificed his life to save us so that we could go and we could live our lives. And I heard that and I thought, wow, if that isn't what Jesus has done for me. I mean, it's about a king, isn't it? Who came to rescue us. We were stuck. We were trapped. We were without hope. And then, did Jesus risk all? Yes, he risked all to come and to save us. He gave up his throne. He gave up every good thing. He humbled himself. He made himself of no reputation and took on the form of a slave to save us. And he can if we will let him. Those boys, to get out of that cave, had to trust their lives to their rescuers. And Jesus calls us to trust him with our very lives. He calls us to lay down our lives and, and to be born again into his kingdom. And then he sends us out, by the way, to live the kingdom of heaven in our homes, our families, our neighborhoods, our workplaces. Search heaven and earth. No truth more powerful than this which is made manifest in works of mercy to those who need our sympathy and aid. This is the truth. This is the truth of Jesus, the truth of the kingdom of God. Listen to this. This is, make your hair stand up a little bit. When those who profess the name of Christ shall practice the principles of the golden rule, the same power will attend the gospel as in apostolic times. That's exciting. Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Pray with me. Today, God, we...